Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. In this episode, we'll be talking to Amelia Wiles, the founder and CEO of College Confident, an organization whose mission is to get students into college and not into debt. Amelia wants to disrupt the world of higher education. Hi, I'm Karen Zadinga, your co-host for the podcast. Getting to college has never been easy, but for some, there are so many hurdles that it's a nearly impossible leap. And while more and more high school graduates now have options, reductions in federal and state funding, shifting demographics, and runaway administrations have meant that costs have gone up. Along with that, so has the level of student debt. Yet, there are glimmers of hope through some positive turbulence, Emilia, and the work she's doing through College Confident. As soon as we got into our conversation with Amelia, the laughs began. We'll tune into it in just a second, but first let's hear from this episode's sponsor, Sierra Learning Solutions, combining innovation tools, expert facilitation, and strategic assessment to bring your vision to life. Learn more at sierralearningsolutions.com. Also, we'd like to thank Mac Avenue as a contributing sponsor. So that's our warm-up. Yes. Yeah. Feeling limber now? Or good? I feel really, really good. Amelia, the instant you came on the screen, I like loosened up and lightened up. Oh, good. <laughs> this is fun. I think this is it's gonna great. Be fun. It's yeah. just supposed to be fun. Really informal. We kind of just chat. You know, we get into stuff and we don't have this scripted. And this is really organic. We're just letting this process evolve. <sighs> Take me back. There you were one day. All right. And you decided, ah, I know what the world needs. <laughs> okay, where was I? 10 or 12 years ago, I was working for a bunch of nonprofits across New York City, and I was implementing different programs to service young people to kind of push them socially ahead. Social mobility programs, I call them. There were different forms. I made one in the Bronx that was focused on photography and the arts, a different one that used a different platform, et cetera, et cetera. Started a new one with the Gates Foundation and an organization in Brooklyn using college access. And it finally hit me like, wait a minute, Everybody can come in from all these nonprofits and do all this stuff with young people and at risk and, and whatever the terms are everyone loves to use, but they're not actually getting tools that push them forward economically and their households and their communities, right? Like what is the missing piece for social mobility that everybody's trying but doesn't actually work? And I said, oh, wait, it's moving social and economic classes through college. So there was a lot of upheaval at this one nonprofit. And I realized like, wait a minute, I can't even control the fund. Like there's no more funds, right? Like, oh my gosh, there was supposed to be X amount of dollars to service X amount of students with X amount of staff. And then the organization takes it and puts it somewhere else. And I was like, nonprofits are the worst. So <laughs> I stepped down and said, I'm just going to take my kids at the time. There were 14, my students. And I said, let's just do this on our own. Like, can I swear on the podcast? Yes, you can swear. Mm -hmm. Okay. F this. Let's go fucking do this on our own. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't working. So the parents at the time, like those 
students were living at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're high school students. Mm-hmm. Tell me about these students. Like, what kind of kids are they? Like, are they kids who would normally be thinking about university? No, 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 no. These are all kids. A lot of them actually are now my current executive directors. Cool. But at the time, these were all kids from East New York section of Bushwick. They were just trying to stay alive. They weren't really trying to go to college. Yeah. If they did go to college, they went to local universities. Mm-hmm. And they weren't really branching out. So we started to take them on overnights to Swarthmore and show them what Ivy League looked like and show them, you know, we toured them around, but I was like, there's still another missing piece. They're not seeing kids like themselves on these campuses. Yeah. Showing them that it can be done. So we started with one school. And I made sure that we were a for-profit organization. So we're a social enterprise. Okay. Everybody likes to use that word. It's very hip right now. Very hip. <laughs> very hip. You and I had some words about it. Yep. <laughs> yep, standing up. And we launched with one high school. We now are in 45 high schools in six years. Wow. That's huge. That's massive growth. Yeah, we went from servicing 75 seniors to 8,000 kids a year. So it it blew up and we have been operating kind of in this VUCA vacuum from the book (laughs) ever since. It's a constant state of chaos, constant. And we hire mostly our alumni. Mm-hmm. because they know the process, they know the needs of our young people. We have expanded to different types of high schools. So we started mostly with underprivileged communities, and now we're in very privileged communities. We use the same formula across the board. Oh, interesting. Tell me about this formula. So the formula is College Confident wants to solve the issue of college debt across America. Mm-hmm. College debt has crippled our families. They've crippled our households. Young people are misinformed, as are their families, and they think that taking out all these loans means it's worth it. And it's not because you can't get jobs you want. You have to get jobs you need. You can't enter the housing market. There's a huge trickle-down effect into the economy from college debt. And I think if you look at other countries, they don't have that issue. Ah. because colleges and universities are mostly free. So we said, okay, we have to create a hack. We have to disrupt what's happening. And so we created kind of pipelines to financially friendly colleges, and we created relationships where we can call up so-and-so and and say, okay, here's the list of kids. You already interviewed them in October. Right. Like, you know, and we deliver. So our quality is always 100%. We focus on quality of service mm-hmm. and the quality of our counselors is most important. So we don't even have an office. Wow. Are you mostly in the Northeast or have you moved to other parts of the country? So we're mostly in the Northeast. I moved out to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've been trying to launch here mm-hmm. in certain schools and certain communities. And what's been happening in Pittsburgh is there's a big tech boom. So this thing has morphed into an online program that I'm working with a team here in Pittsburgh to 
spread across America. Okay, explain to me about the formula, though, because my understanding, and I live in Canada, it's a whole other system. It's a whole it's a great other world. system. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you! <laughs> there are pros and cons, but generally university isn't quite as expensive. But there's also not the same, at least in my experience with my kids when they were going through school, in the school they were at, there wasn't the same kind of push and pressure towards university as I've seen with some of my friends, say, who live in the States, whose kids are going to school there. So my view of the thing is that the kids that I know in the U.S., and granted, it's a tiny sample size, <laughs> are like programmed. It's not even an option to not go to university, right? And yeah, there's lots of talk about money around it and everything. So how are you different? Like, what are you doing? Describe the problem to me so that I understand College Confident and College Confident Prep use a two-tiered approach. We do a timeline, meaning that our kids are 50% ahead of the rest of American students going to college. And in what way are they ahead? So the timeline is a student starts their applications their senior year. They take a couple SAT exams, the standardized test, maybe two or three times. They apply to three or four colleges, maybe eight they have no assistance, so they don't even know the price of the school. They don't understand how much family money they have and how those two are directly related and how much financial aid they're going to get. So nobody even tells them if they can afford this or not. Right. And they kind of visit some schools and have generic tours and say, okay, I want to apply to these schools. And they pay the fee of mm -hmm. 50 to $80 per school, mm -hmm. and they apply to maybe like eight. So already they're throwing down maybe $2,000 for the process plus the testing fees. And they just say, oh, cool, I got in. And that's it. And then their parents have to navigate the financial aid forms and understand the numbers. And then they get tricked on the numbers because colleges package loans and they don't understand what the loans really are. So there's not a guide at that end process to get you over that hurdle. Wow. Okay. So for our students, we start them junior year. The first question is, we start them with their financial aid understanding before we go to the college applications. So they understand, okay, I'm not applying to Temple University. Sorry, I know, Rob, that's your alma mater. <laughs> yeah, spent some time there. <laughs> Sorry. We say, whoa, Temple's not going to give you any money. They haven't given any of our kids any money for eight years. Mm -hmm. So you can apply, but you probably won't end up going. And so they say, okay, well, my family income is under $80,000 and I have perfect SAT scores. And then we say, okay, you can definitely do the Ivies because they give you a free ride if your income is under 80. Or we understand that Syracuse is really financially friendly. If whatever package you initially get, you can barter 15 to 20K off of it through the financial aid appeal process. That happens in February and January. Past February and March, schools don't have any money. They're out. They gave it all away. Right. And anyone who is applying by January 1st is way too late. So that's the regular decision deadline. All our kids apply by October 15th, November 1st. So it's a timeline. So they take the SAT and the ACT junior year 10 times. We cover all the fees. Then they apply to 20 colleges. We cover all the fees. It's a numbers game. So you have, you were accepted into 12 schools. Then you get to look at the numbers and say, oh, wait a minute. 
I'm not going to Temple. I'm actually going to Allegheny College Honors Program because I got the full ride. Right. So, and if you don't have the full ride, then we work to ask which school is going to give you additional funding because you can't meet whatever requirement. Right. Yeah, yeah. So how are you profitable? How does that model work? So you're paying for all their fees, time, lots of staff time. Lots of staff time. How are you making money? So the high schools pay us and we take care of every graduating senior. They have to graduate on their own. We're not going to do the high school, you know. Right, yeah. Hold their hand in that process. That's not our responsibility. (laughs) We're responsible for their college and university education. So we take every kid who's graduating and he's got to walk out with one to three full ride options. The first year is always a little rocky because people are getting used to it. But by the second year, the high school's graduation rate goes up and they get higher ratings on college acceptances, which means that they get bigger budgets from the city or the state. It's a complete mystery to me, right? I don't know one because that's not the model here. That's not what I know. So that's okay. Yeah. So they win, we win, the kids win, everybody wins. And we've started doing online just counseling with regular families and they pay whatever, $4,000 or something for two years or the prices vary on the package that they're looking for. And we do what we're doing, which is we do weekly virtual check-ins with the kid and the parents. So the parents can ask us all the questions. We, everybody's informed mm-hmm. and everybody's on the timeline. Ah. So right now my juniors have taken the SAT three to four times already. Right. And so you start to engage with the students when they're juniors? 10th grade. Okay. And it's done by end of junior year. If you're calling us in senior year, it's a cleanup job. Yeah. So if you apply early decision or early action to your universities, you get anywhere between 25 to 50% more financial aid automatically. And those deadlines, November 1st to November 15th, but like families don't know this. I guess the crossroads I have is how much do you want to be a disruptor? Because lots of colleges and universities could be very upset. In what way? Because we might be ruining their business. Ah. In the sense that we're steering our students away from certain schools, colleges, and universities that aren't financially friendly. And it's a new dialogue that can put certain schools out of business, certain universities and colleges. Wow. And so that's the head of the needle that you're dancing on right now, trying to decide how disruptive you want to be. And how public. So do I self-publish a book and give it to everybody and then the whole system crashes and has to be reborn? I don't know if I want to do that. Why not? Fear. Yeah. These are established businesses. Mm Mm-hmm. And people's careers are on the line. Right. But... Not ours. (laughs) But isn't our future also on the line? I mean, our future is our children, right? And if we're not educating them well, and if we're not preparing them well for life, and and that may not include going to university, right? It may include going to a community college or a work program. Or trade school. Trade school's phenomenal. Welders are making way more than doctors these days. Mm -hmm. So it's all that information being out there in one place. I'm not sure how much positive turbulence that is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I was thinking, 
you're generating value, right? And you're generating a lot of value, particularly for the kids. But, you know, you also mentioned value for the high schools. So, I mean, I'm thinking about the turbulence that you're creating by what you're doing. Who else is in the sort of value receiving side of the equation? So the parents are avoiding debt and the parents are avoiding even more financial burdens from having to take care of their own students post-college because if the student's graduating with a reasonable amount of debt or debt-free, they are free to fly. Mm -hmm. But when they aren't free to fly, they come back because their wings are clipped from the debt. And this burdens the family. Is there any value that is getting created for the receiving colleges and universities? Talk about that a little bit. Our financially friendly schools will send them the best kids. So they have to meet quotas. We need X amount of Native American students, X amount of African American, X amount of first generation students to fill certain pressures that are put on their financial aid offices. And we're able to say, okay, we fulfilled your quota. And we know that these kids are the best of the best that you're looking for. And each college and university is different. So we know that Brandeis is looking for, in Brandeis or Wheaton, right, is looking for a much different type of student in the Boston area than per se Harvard is. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of filter our students and say, okay, this one is like a huge resume, has done everything. That's the Brandeis kid, right? That's the one who can shake everybody's hand and that's the right match. So they fill quotas. They also know that they're getting a good student. And sometimes our kids get rejected and that's fine too. Mm -hmm. But there's options. Every student's going to have 15 to 20 schools. Wow. They're going to get into a few. (laughs) Even for those colleges and universities where you're generating value, you are creating turbulence. Yeah. We're putting different students in their classrooms. Yeah. And so how is that turbulence resulting in maybe both positive and negative outcomes for the industry? Great question. I think I'm going to bring this strategy towards a concept that is called opportunity hoarding. Mm -hmm. So opportunity hoarding is something that gated communities use, private elite skulls and bones of Yale or just the best high school in X town wants to keep it that way. So what they do is they kind of hoard their opportunities just for their population. Like we have a pool and no one else can use it unless you have a key. Or our school has this and we're going to make sure that this program is well-funded and all the parents are going to come together and make sure that they fundraise properly for it. So those opportunities are not in other communities. We do reverse opportunity hoarding. Which is like democratizing the process in a sense. So we say, we know these opportunities and we're not giving them to certain, you know, we're going to distribute them for the common man. So I've been reading this book called Leapfrog by Natalie Molina Nino. It's for female entrepreneurs and it's called Leapfrog, the New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs outsmart the status quo, launch, fund, and grow your business. So she talks about a concept called leapfrogging. And she says, okay, since the beginning of time, businesses, and no offense, Rob, white guys. (laughs) I'm saying it's fair. 
(laughs) (laughs) have been using tricks to get ahead, right? So it's you use your opportunity hoarding or you use your social club or you have somebody you went to college with and they hook you up with a job. Mm -hmm. But often women entrepreneurs and especially women of color don't have those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So they think, okay, I'm just going to sit back and wait to let the system service me. And it never happens. And it never does. Because of that, yeah. She's talking about using those same hacks to get ahead for your business and socially moving up and expanding and feeding your kids and your house and that sort of thing. So we're taking the same leapfrogging effect and giving it to our students and saying, okay, so-and-so got into Yale because his dad was X. It's not because this kid had good SAT scores. So you're going to take the SAT 12 times take that kid out on his SAT scores, move in and sit right in the front row and put your hand up. Yeah. Then ask those questions that are going to make people uncomfortable. So it's taking that hacking of opportunity hoarding and leapfrogging people forward. So those students who are coming, at least originally, more from disadvantaged neighborhoods, but now you're applying it a little more broadly, I can imagine it still has to feel a little bit alien. You know, I grew up in you know, neighborhood, you know, maybe disadvantaged neighborhood, maybe just like, I don't know, blue collar neighborhood, whatever. I did that, met you, things happen, bam, I'm in Yale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm feeling like I have two heads most of the time. And you do, because you're pivoting between two worlds. Yeah. And how do you help students navigate that feeling? Like I can imagine it's probably quite intimidating and perhaps inhibits their success in this place where they're not like everybody else in the room. So we've been studying different support systems on how to do this. We don't have the funding to run a full operation to the way that we want. But we do, because we're sending all of our kids to the same schools, we use something called the Posse Effect. So there's a scholarship out there called the Posse Scholarship. And so they take kids in groups of six or groups of 10 or groups of... And they kind of induct them into whatever. We just had one from LaGuardia High School that's going to Brandeis University, right? So she's going to be with 12 other kids on full scholarship from different high schools, and they're all going to progress together. Mm -hmm. So we kind of use that effect of saying, okay, if the kid reaches out to us sophomore year and says, I've been having a hard time, and we'll be like, all right, I'm going to, for example, one of our students, Ross Judah Carter, who's at Syracuse University, or Terrell Smith, we're going to say, okay, Terrell, go find Ross Judah. He's a year below. This is what he looks like. Here's the connection. Just keep an eye out. Right. Just make sure he's not getting in with the wrong crowd or he's signing up for the easier classes freshman year. And then you can kind of wean off. But it's a community effect. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Hi, it's Rob Brodnick here, jumping in with a very short sponsor break. This episode is brought to you by Sierra Learning Solutions, where we're rethinking the traditional tools used for planning and strategy. Check out our website at sierralearningsolutions.com. You know, I wanted to ask about the, the name of the company, and it refers back to some of the earlier things we talked about. Turbulence is change, a disruption in a system that has many kinds of outcomes. And we talked about fear as something that exists in the environment that we're talking about. So confidence and, you know, confident. I'm curious about the different forms of that word and how you came to it and how it it might battle some fear in the system. College confident 
was created because it wanted to illustrate just what you said. We wanted to give families and students confidence and create confident young people moving forward. So how do you do that? You eliminate fear. You provide trust and guidance. You give a safe space to a normally chaotic experience. So it's always operating, and back to the third characteristic of turbulence, of operating in disorder, confusion, and chaos. So you're always facing the greatest fear you could have and moving backwards. So it only gets better as you move forward, I guess. So for the young person, if you say, okay, you're in an absolute terrifying space of the unknown. You have no answers. It's chaotic. Everyone's fighting. (laughs) Go to my alma mater. No, I don't want to go to your alma mater, right? And your aunt Lucy went there. You should go there, right? So there's all kinds of different information bombarding this fragile young mind. And you say, okay, listen, we're just going to go through these same steps together. You can ask me questions anytime. I'm available reasonable hours of the day. You can email me right now. I'm Personally, I'm working with a young woman in Greece, so we're operating on a five-hour time difference, but she's doing great. And you also give voice to the parents so that they can come in with all their fears, because all of this fighting and chaos is just a point of fear. Mm -hmm. I guess we're just professional fear removers. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love it. Yeah. So do you also help the students choose what program they're trying to apply to, like what they want to do? My story, when my daughter was coming into that place of trying to apply for university, and I was like, look, we should go see somebody because... She's a bright kid, could do just about anything, really didn't know how she wanted to focus. And she resisted me for months on talking to somebody. I finally, like, what is the problem? Why do you hate this? And in British Columbia, we've got a course called Planning 10, which is supposed to be your prep for college or university course. And she goes, Planning 10, all I got from that was that I'm orange or should be a taxidermist. (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) and so totally first of all it seems to be the wrong question to be asking what you should do like what your job should be rather than what your field of study should be and secondly it seems to me that the tools that students have at least in my experience in my world (laughs) are let's just say limited at best so what's different with you what do you do We don't expect anything from them. We assume they don't know. And so we don't plan accordingly. The average person changes their career three to five times in their lifetime. All of our students will start somewhere and end somewhere else. So we focus on giving them opportunities. Students come in and we can size them up in five minutes. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of questions, but if all you have to do is sit and listen, which is a lost art form culturally speaking, I think that has a lot of significance to solving people and social problems. Sometimes a student loves art and that's okay. We're doing art schools, no problem. Or the student says, I'm going to be a doctor because I love, or a veteran, I want to, you know, I want to save dogs. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do it. And then we'll just shape all those. But unless that student comes in with a very specific, we just say, okay, we're going to send you out into these communities that you can choose. You can shop around. 
right? You can do liberal arts and you can study this and you don't have to know. That's totally normal. You're 17. It's okay to be in chaos. Right. The students, I could totally see how they would relate to finally someone who removes the pressure and just says, I'm going to just listen to you. Don't worry. There's no decision you need to make today. We're going to walk you through the process. The parents, how do you stop them? Because those people, they're often... They're cuckoo. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, they love their children and they want their children to do well. And they think they're being helpful. It's not that they're doing it out of a sense of malice, but it's the pressure that I see kids get under to go to Aunt Amelia's alma mater or go to, you know, study this thing because I didn't study this thing and it's what I always wanted to do. Or how do you deal with them? We call it a voting block. (laughs) So you treat it like a co-op almost. Everybody gets a vote. So the kids got 20 applications. Mom, you get to pick three schools. Everybody who's fighting gets voice and they get to pick a few schools. They don't get to pick all the schools. Mm. The child gets to pick the majority. We get to pick a few because we know what's going to put money in the pocket. Right. If the dad wants the kid to go to OSU, Ohio State University, we know the kid's not going to get in. But fine, we'll apply but then we're going to make sure there's five others that we know he's going to get into and that have better funding. Mm-hmm. Democracy? Yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, when the acceptance letters come in and the offers of scholarship come in, that can do a lot to... Then it's a whole new discussion. Yeah. Little Billy got a full ride over here. Okay, so it's not where I wanted him to go, but it's a full ride. <laughs> so you got it. Right. So then the family makes their own decision at that point that what is the most important. And different families have different needs. Mm -hmm. So some families are all about the money. And some families really want their kid to just do internships. So they want to make sure their kid's in a city where they have access to working in hospitals. It's always different. We just want to make sure they have the options to choose from. And they're not forced to go to the three schools they got into. So magic wand... Amelia, here's the magic wand question. You got a magic wand. You can do one big thing. What are you going to do with that magic wand? This is a great question. (laughs) Naturally, I want to answer more questions to that question, but I would like to change society to improve people's lives. So if I have to share all the information with everybody, that's what I would do. And I would probably do it anonymously. So to paraphrase, you would like to kind of blow the doors off of that industry. Everybody gets the level playing field. The doors of your gated community are busted off because now the kid from Kentucky can go to Princeton just the way that your kid with the key to the pool can Mm -hmm. bring it. Wouldn't that be lovely? It would. It would create a whole new everything. Yeah. So much turbulence. (laughs) (laughs) But it would be amazing, right, if that kid from Kentucky could hang out at Princeton. It would bring understanding. It would bring communication. It would bring so many things that have divided us for so long. Mm -hmm. It would bring more peace. So one of the tips that we talk about is be intentional about positive turbulence and strategy. And I think you've done that. 
And you know, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned, I'm disrupting this industry. I'm a little worried, you know, because people work there and they have jobs and all that. And I would say in response to that is trust your instincts here and what you just said. You're being strategic about disrupting an industry and honestly, they need it. So they'll respond in some kind of way and we don't know exactly, you know, how that'll be. My name is Janice Smith and I live in Boston. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor Janice who lives in Boston. She's about to get a lot of mail. She's going to get a lot of mail. (laughs) A lot of angry, angry letters. (laughs) Well, you know, that's uh, delightful. There's a lot of disruption ahead for you. If you're successful, you're out of a job, Amelia. Are you going to move on to disrupting industry next? or I've already got like three other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I will be creating turbulence until the day I die. So you're a serial turbulator is what you are. <laughs> if it's not sparking change and sparking new thought, what is it doing? We get one short-lived time on this rock. Let's just do the best we can. Mm-hmm. make it better, be creative, and do things different every time. Mm-hmm. Don't play it safe. Don't never play it safe, ever. One last question from me anyway. Flipping that magic wand on its head, if you could sit down and have a conversation with the dean at Harvard, that disruption wave is coming, right? And sooner or later, it's going to crash on these Ivy League shorts. So if you could sit down, I don't know, with a guy at Stanford or whoever, right? One of those really senior people in these organizations, somebody who has the power to change things, what would you tell them to do? I would say, dear president of Northwestern or Stanford, or this change is already in motion. And if you're smart, you would study it and change your organization to adapt to it, be ready for it, absorb it and make it into something even more powerful. Mm-hmm. Al, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed talking. This is fun. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so much fun. I'm so glad you're both doing this. Yeah, appreciate the boost. It's such a gift. Sierra Learning Solutions helps organizations craft effective strategies and build cultures of innovation. Learn more at sierralearningsolutions.com. Thank you to AMI who have nurtured us in developing this podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and of course, the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book, and dare I say, the OG of Positive Turbulence. AMI is a pioneering nonprofit organization comprised of committed individuals who foster and leverage creativity and innovation in organizations and society. AMI identifies leading edge innovation, shares experiences, sponsors research, and recognizes innovation and creative processes. Find out more at aminnovation.org. And thank you to Mac Avenue, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. If you want to find out more about your hosts, Positive Turbulence, our guests, or check out our very cool and very diverse reading list, head on over to positiveturbulence.com. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.